In this next hour, we hear about redistricting and why it matters. Sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. The two speakers are Andrea Kaminsky and David Cannon. We begin with David Cannon. He's professor and chair of the political science department at UW-Madison. He's also affiliated with the La Follette School of Public Affairs. His teaching and research interests are in American political institutions, especially Congress. The second speaker is Andrea Kaminsky. She's the executive director of the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin. The talk took place on March 2nd, 2016 at the Capital Lakes Retirement Community in Madison. Now, David Cannon. So I'm here to talk about redistricting uh, today and want to talk about the, the general sort of practices and in, in, uh, in terms of the principles of redistricting and then talk about the Wisconsin cases specifically with the partisan redistricting that's going on uh, in, in Wisconsin and also uh, racial redistricting as it was applied in Milwaukee. Um, so I was thinking about giving you a pop quiz on the reading materials you were given to make sure you had done your homework, uh, but I figured that wouldn't be very nice. So instead I'll just uh, go through some of the, uh, the key points just to make sure we're all on the same page in terms of the, uh, the criteria that the state legislators use when they redraw district lines uh, every, every 10 years after the census. And so you have, uh, in most states, the state legislatures still draw the district lines. There are a handful of states now that have bipartisan commissions that, that do the work. On uh, Wisconsin, is still something that's done by the state legislatures. And they have a whole set of, of criteria they have to take into account when drawing those lines. Uh, some are required by statute, by federal law, some are required by state law, and some are required by uh, the U.S. and state constitutions. So there, I'll break them into two categories. One, uh, the first two are called the, the big two. Uh, so equal population and, and racial, uh, racial considerations. So the first one in terms of equal population, this has been since the 1960s, the Supreme Court ruled that you have to have the idea of one person, one vote, or as they called it back in the 60s, one man, one vote. But one person, one vote uh, for redistricting, meaning that districts have to be roughly the same size in, in population. Now, for congressional redistricting, they take basically a zero deviation rule that districts have to be exactly the same size, no deviation in, in population at all. In state legislative redistricting, they have uh, a 10% sort of leeway they allow, but in practice, it's really more like a 1% deviation they typically allow. And again, that's been a, a, a standard that's been applied since the 1960s. And so that's like the first thing that states have to do when they're drawing lines is make sure that they're roughly equal size in the population. The second one then is, is race, and this comes from the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Um, that for the first time in the South gave African Americans the, the actual right to, to vote in, in the South and enforced the, the, the right uh, to vote by federal marshals, you know, being there for uh, overseeing the, uh, the voting process. But as part of that law as well, with the amendments that were especially uh, added in 1982, there came a, an additional uh, sort of equal access to have a meaningful vote. And I'll talk about that more a little bit later. Uh, but basically, here the idea is that district lines can't be drawn in a way that make it less likely that racial minorities, especially African Americans and Latinos, uh, have an equal opportunity to participate in electing the uh, candidates that they want. And again, I'll talk about that in more detail in a few minutes. Now, in addition to those big two of equal population and race, there's a whole range of other criteria that state legislatures have to consider when drawing district lines. Um, so the, the list includes compactness, contiguity, uh, respect for uh, divisions and the natural boundaries, protecting communities of interest, avoiding incumbent pairings, partisan fairness, and competition. And so each of those are things that state legislatures also have to consider and in some cases, it's hard to, to, in fact, you can't sort of maximize all of those at the same time. Uh, there's no way that you can have sort of equally competitive districts and districts that, can, that respect uh, community lines and, and boundaries, take into account you know, where incumbents live. You just can't do all of that at once. And so what state legislatures tend to do is take care of the big two first, make sure they have equal population and, and race uh, taken into account. And then they, they try to do as many of these other ones uh, as, they, as they can. 
And what happens is you do get a conflict between traditional districting principles, the list there, and reality. That, in fact, you know, if you look at something like having uh, you know, residential segregation in an urban area, if you respect traditional boundaries of a segregated uh, neighborhood, you know, then you're going to typically have packing, which can dilute the equality of, of racial voting then. Because uh, if you, you know, pack racial minorities into a congressional district or a state legislative district, that means they won't have as much voting power across the state in terms of being able to elect uh, a, a broader range of, of racial minorities to, to office. Uh, and so especially if once you bring into uh, so the history on this in, in many southern cities, but also uh, a lot of northern cities, uh, there's been then there are institutional uh, sort of segregation imposed earlier by, by law and now more by, uh, by social practice and, and custom. And so when you have boundaries that are intentionally drawn to segregate and then practices that perpetuate uh, those patterns, if you respect those boundaries, then it's, again, going to lead to that kind of packing of, of racial minorities. And one of the Wisconsin cases I'll talk about towards the end, there was a, a successful lawsuit uh, earlier last year that forced them to redraw two of the districts in Milwaukee because they were seen as being a violation of the, of the Voting Rights Act. Um, also with competitiveness and representation, um, that when you have, if you're, you're trying to you know, create the maximum amount of competition between the two parties, that may undermine other aspects of, of representation that you're also uh, concerned about. Um, and then, finally, uh, the, just respecting these neutral principles uh, means that if you're intentionally trying to do other things with redistricting, like promote racial representation, as was true in the 1992 round of redistricting, um, that, that's something then that will almost, uh, by definition, require you to violate some of these other districting principles. And I'll show you some examples of, of what I mean in practice. Okay, so here, these are some examples from the previous round of redistricting uh, from different states that, that illustrate some of these principles. Uh, so this is Ohio around the city of Columbus. And you had uh, initially the, uh, the, the maps were drawn in a way such that you would, from the previous round, that Democrats would have uh, two districts that were centered around uh, Columbus. When the Republicans redrew, la redrew the lines, is they split Columbus into three different congressional districts. And so part of it went to that northwestern district, part went to the northeast, and the rest got split up into that southern uh, part of the, uh, of the district. And so it split up the Democratic vote into three different districts, and after a couple of, of elections, the Republicans ended up winning all three of those. Whereas a, very, so a different way of drawing the lines would have easily led to a situation where Democrats would have picked up two of the three and Republicans would have had one. And so instead the Republicans picked up all three because they split up the, the urban Democratic voters in Columbus into three kind of equal districts. Um, this other one is from Illinois, uh, and this is a, a Democratic version of, of packing voters. Uh, and so this, again, was a, an effort of Democratic map drawers to, to try to you know, give them a chance to pick up a district they otherwise wouldn't have been able to, uh, to pick up. This next one here is sometimes redistricting gets very personal, uh, where the, uh, the people who are interested in either running for a higher office uh, or to eliminate the competition can put pressure on the map drawers to take the competition out of their district. And this one is from uh, Chicago. Uh, so Barack Obama, when he first ran for office, it was against an incumbent House member from, from Chicago, uh, Bobby Rush, and Obama got killed in the primary. I think he only got 30% of the vote against Bobby Rush. It was the first time he ran for office. Well, Bobby Rush was really worried about this up-and-coming politician named Barack Obama. He thought, I don't want any piece of this guy. He's, he scares me, and I think he might beat me a little bit later. So he talked to his friends in the state legislature, and they drew Barack Obama out of his district. They literally like put him across the street so he wouldn't be in Bobby Rush's district anymore. Uh, and this kind of thing happens routinely where you know, maps will be drawn to help either an ambitious politician who thinks, oh, I want to be able to run for Congress someday, so they draw a district that will help that, or to, again, take competition out of the district as they did uh, in this case with Barack Obama. Um, then here's one from the state of New York, and this happens at least there. That's an, that's an, this one looks like earmuffs. Yeah? So one, one part of the ear is Rochester, and the other part of the ear is Buffalo, and those are the, the two sides of the, the earmuffs. Um, but this one is interesting because here, and this happens in at least 
four or five states every 10 years for redistricting. Uh, the states that lose seats, so they're not growing in population as quickly as the rest of the country. So if your state is not growing as quickly, uh, then you lose seats. And then states that are growing, like Texas and Florida, you know, Arizona, they pick up seats. And so you know, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Michigan, they've been losing seats almost every 10 years. Well, this year, uh, in, in this round of redistricting, New York lost two seats. And so what the state legislature did is they created two districts, one that paired two Democratic incumbents and one that paired two Republican incumbents. They made them fight it out, basically, to see who would, you know, it's kind of like the game musical chairs, like, you know, who doesn't get to sit down. Um, well, here, the, the two Democrats they paired, one was from Rochester, one was from Buffalo. And so they had a heck of a time, like, connecting those two, but they managed to do it, and they had a little strip that, you know, went along the northern part. Um, and so they you know, ended up having those two Democratic incumbents paired in that way. So districts often are drawn in, in pretty funny ways, but it's usually for some very specific reason when it has a funny shape like this. And typically it's to gain partisan advantage, but sometimes it is you know, a more uh, idiosyncratic thing like this. Um, okay, so the next topic I want to talk about uh, is uh, racial redistricting and go back to something I mentioned as one of the big two. So one of the two big principles that all states have to take into account is to make sure they're not violating uh, the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and so this is, the, again, the 1965 law that was, was passed, uh, but then the, the, it evolved into not just having access to a voting booth and actually being able to cast your, your vote, which was the original purpose, but in terms of how the law was interpreted, it also evolved then into this right to cast a meaningful vote. And this then got into the whole practice of redistricting. And that uh, because southern states, and just to give you an early example, uh, here, here's the state of Mississippi before and after um, the one-person, one-vote decisions that, that happened. So the, the right-hand map shows the, the counties in Mississippi that had a majority black population. And so that is like a hugely majority black congressional district. Now, it didn't mean that a black uh, representative was elected because blacks couldn't vote before 1965 in the, in the South. It, you know, they were denied the opportunity to vote in, in most places across the, the Deep South. And so you had a, a district that was like 60% black, but because African Americans weren't allowed to, to vote, you had a white representative from that district. Well, as soon as the Voting Rights Act was passed, um, the, the state legislature got nervous and thought, oh my gosh, we have an a, a African-American majority district here. Chances are that you know, we're going to have an African-American elected to Congress. Well, we can't let that happen. And so they sliced up that district so you can see how they redrew the lines right after the Voting Rights Act was passed. In 1966, they had a, a session of the state legislature. So they took that, that heavy uh, African-American population in the northwestern part of the state and sliced it into three districts so there was no black majority district anymore. And so this is the kind of thing the court started to, to look at and say, hey, this is really not uh, legitimate, that you, know, you can't really dilute someone's voting power uh, in, in that way. Well, the, the court kind of stepped back from that in 1980 in this Mobile versus Boland decision. And the, it was a fairly conservative court at the time, and they made a much tougher standard when they in that ruling to say that in order to prove that something like that Mississippi map was uh, illegal under the Voting Rights Act, you'd have to prove an intent to discriminate, not just a discriminatory effect. Okay, and you can imagine that's a very difficult thing to prove. You know, because even if someone is, you know, like a flat out racist, unless you have them, you know, on the, you know, recorded, uh, you know, a transcript of them saying this, it's going to be really hard to prove that in court. And so it's a standard that was, was almost impossible to, to prove. Well, Congress came back two years later with the Voting Rights Act amendments and reversed that decision and said, no, that really undermines the intent of the law that, as we wrote it, and we really do want uh, only an effect standard to be in place, not an intent standard. And so it, it made it easier, again, for plaintiffs to prove racial discrimination in redistricting. And subsequent to, to that, those amendments, then you had the Supreme Court come back years later in Thornburg versus Jingles, and here they sort of endorse for the first time this idea of uh, diluting racial voting when it comes to redistricting. They set up a three-pronged test that you'd have to go through to, to prove that that happened, but what this did is it led to a whole round of litigation in the late 80s uh, that, uh, that state legislatures looking at that decided, well, we better create some black majority districts to make sure we don't get sued. 
And so that led to this redistricting process then that, that maximized the number of uh, majority-minority districts. Now, this led to some problems kind of going the other way. And this is the North Carolina redistricting plan uh, in, in, in 1992. District 1, which some people have called either Rorschach uh, inkblot test or a bug splattered on a windshield, that's one black majority district. And then the other, you can hardly see. It's so skinny. It looks like a snake going uh, right through the middle of the state. Uh, that's District 12. It goes from Raleigh-Durham in the upper right, picks up Greensboro. That little part that jogs up goes and picks up Greensboro and wanders on down to Charlotte. And there are some places along the way there that that district is no wider than the interstate highway. So it literally like travels down the highway as it's going down the state. But there's a problem. And see how it goes right across District 6? This violates one of the principles that I mentioned initially of the principle of contiguity that districts have to be contiguous with one another or, or they're illegal. And they've, they've pushed the boundaries of that. In some cases, there's this one case in New Jersey a few years ago where they had a district that was only contiguous at low tide. At high tide, it wasn't. <laughs> but you know, at low tide, it was as good enough. Right? Yeah, so, uh, but, but this one, it actually would have bisected the district cleanly. It looks like it goes right through, but they came up with a great plan. There's a part where, the, again, is just as wide as the highway. They took the, the District 12, took it off an exit ramp, put it across a bridge, put it down the exit ramp on the other side, and District 6 went under the bridge. Uh, and so, so that was the way they, they kept it from being bisected, was by having it uh, make that little trick. Um, so, so again, the, so this kind of, of manipulating of district lines has been done both to disenfranchise black voters back in the 60s, like in Mississippi. Here it was done to try to give them an opportunity to elect candidates of their choice. Well, it turns out the Supreme Court didn't like that either. Uh, and so in 1993, there was this decision, Shaw versus Reno, that struck down that funny-looking district in North Carolina and said, you know, this is going too far. Like, you know, it does matter how districts look. And in a series of cases, there were about a dozen cases that came out of that Shaw case. Uh, the Miller versus Johnson uh, case was the one that said that race can be a factor in redistricting now, but not the predominant factor. So you have this difficult balancing that, that state legislatures have to do now, and this is subsequent to the Eastleigh Cromartie case, which was the last round of that North Carolina one that went to the Supreme Court like three different times. And that last round said, again, basically you can use race uh, as a factor. It can't be predominant. Um, but you have this balancing act then you have to do between wanting to make sure you're not violating the Voting Rights Act and not diluting the voting power of African Americans, but you also have to make sure you don't go too far and to where you are actually disenfranchising white voters under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. And that's, the again, the place that state legislatures find themselves now is trying to balance those two things. Um, and then finally, the last one I'll mention is the Shelby uh, County versus Holder, a really important case from a couple of years ago. And this was a decision that struck down uh, Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act that basically made it so uh, an important part of the law, the preclearance part in Section 5, doesn't apply anymore. But basically what this did is open the door to all of the southern states that had been covered by this preclearance procedure before, where any change in a voting practice, whether voter ID law or uh, redistricting or anything that changed a voting practice, moving a precinct, moving a voting precinct somewhere, had to be pre-cleared by the Justice Department to make sure that it wasn't discriminatory. Well, that part of the Voting Rights Act is gone now. So that, that's been, that was struck down by this 2013 decision. And that's what opened the door to North Carolina, Georgia, a bunch of, of southern states, Texas, uh, all sort of you know, shortening early voting periods, imposing you know, very strict voter ID laws and other things, because this now didn't have to go through the Justice Department. That probably would have struck down some of those and not allowed them had it not been for that Supreme Court case. Uh, and so, so that's a, a, a key decision uh, that is affecting the uh, access to voting today. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Redistricting and Why It Matters with Andrea Kaminsky, Executive Director of the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin, and David Cannon, Professor and Chair of the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Okay, so 
the last thing uh, to talk about is partisan redistricting. And I see that back on the, one of the easels, you have the, the famous uh, map there of the original uh, gerrymander, which came from uh, the governor of Massachusetts at the time, Eldridge Jerry, uh, and the district looked like a salamander. Uh, so this goes back all the way to 1812. So even just a long tradition of this in this country, 200 years uh, practice of drawing district lines for partisan purposes. Um, and so this is something that's been you know, continued on through that entire period. And it's a, a practice the Supreme Court has never directly challenged. So unlike the racial redistricting, which they've been struggling with now for 50 years, had a whole series of rulings on it that try to, to get that balance. Um, with partisan redistricting, the court has addressed it at least four or five different you know, significant cases in the last 30 years. But every time they have said, okay, this is potentially an issue, and you always have at least a, a plurality of the court that has recognized this is a justiciable issue that, that they, they could address, but they've always stopped short of saying this is a constitutional violation. They have yet to find whether it's Pennsylvania in 2002, Texas in 2004, and now Wisconsin may be the next uh, testing ground. I'll talk about that case in a couple of minutes. But they've never quite reached the conclusion that this goes too far and that this, this is a constitutional violation. Justice Kennedy is the justice who's right smack in the middle on this, uh, and the, the four liberals on the court were always willing to say, yeah, this looks like we should be saying this is unconstitutional. The other more four conservatives said, no, we shouldn't even be talking about this. Clearly, you can do whatever you want with partisan redistricting. It's just not a problem. Whereas Kennedy has taken the position that what he has seen so far hasn't been uh, a problem enough to say it's a constitutional violation, but he opens the door to the possibility that maybe we will see that violation in the future, and maybe it's going to be Wisconsin, and I'll talk about that uh, in a couple of minutes. Um, and so you have the congressional districts in the last round and then, then the, the current district. And you can see, especially with District 7 in the northwestern part of the state, how they redraw, removed several counties around to make it a more Republican-leaning uh, district. And so something that they did the same thing back in the previous round in, uh, with Tammy Baldwin and Paul Ryan, where they made Tammy Baldwin's district, our district, a little more Democratic, and they made Paul Ryan's district a little more Republican. Because those, those were both fairly competitive seats at the time, and they shifted about 5% or so additional uh, Republicans gave them to Paul Ryan, and additional about 5% of Democrats gave them to Tammy Baldwin. And so that was a way to make districts less competitive in Wisconsin to help you know, one incumbent from each party. That's a fairly typical thing that happens with partisan redistricting is to make it a, an incumbency protection plan uh, rather than sticking it to one party or another. Now, this time around, it was entirely partisan. This time, it was definitely the Republicans uh, trying to gain maximum partisan uh, advantage. Um, the, the idea of partisan symmetry, there's no bias at all. Okay, and so the 50% of the votes produces 50% of the seats. Okay, so, that's, so the equal distribution of votes and seats would be that no bias line in the middle. Um, the Democrats had a substantial advantage, and this goes back from 1952 up until the most recent congressional elections. Democrats had a, an advantage uh, through most of the period up until uh, the early 1990s, and Republicans had the advantage later. For the Democrats, the big reason that they were able to translate uh, a smaller percentage of votes into a bigger percentage of seats, which is the definition of partisan bias, was because of the power of incumbency. They controlled Congress through that entire period. You know, Republicans didn't take over Congress, uh, the House, uh, until 1994 is the first time they, they controlled the House, and the Democrats had it the previous, like, 46 years. And so most of that period of Democrats having an advantage is uh, explained by the incumbency advantage separating the, the effects of incumbency, what's the remaining partisan bias that just comes from redistricting. And there you can see that with the exception of the late 1980s, that's the only about six-year period where Democrats have an advantage. And one other brief blip back in the early 60s. But the Republicans pretty, pretty consistently have had an advantage in the redistricting in, in partisan terms. And it's, it's reached kind of record levels now in the, the last couple of election cycles where uh, they've gained control of more of the state legislature, so they're redrawing uh, lines to reflect partisan advantage uh, for the Republican Party. 
Um, and in redistricting in Wisconsin, it, it clearly has, uh, again, we're kind of the poster child uh, for partisan redistricting in, in this round of redistricting. There are six different lawsuits that have been filed uh, in Wisconsin, one that's still ongoing, the partisan redistricting one that I'll, I'll talk about. Uh, but first, there was the, the one I mentioned before on race, uh, which uh, said that those two districts, two Latino districts in Milwaukee, violated the Voting Rights Act, so they redrew those lines and, and to uh, make them in compliance with the Voting Rights Act. Uh, so that, that case has been settled now. Uh, but the one that's still ongoing is this Whitford versus Nickel, which will go to trial in May. So that was, uh, it's, it's still in, in process right now. Uh, the experts have uh, filed their reports and they'll, they'll go to trial in, in May. Interesting sort of backstory on this. So about a little over a year ago, must have been about a year and a half ago, I got a call from a college friend of mine uh, that we'd been uh, roommates in, in college for a year, and then he went off and became a lawyer. Well, uh, he was uh, had kind of a, a I guess, uh, just a, a real sort of change in, in focus for his uh, professional practice, where he'd been a corporate litigator uh, all of his career, and he just said, I'm always on the wrong side of every issue, David. I can't stand it anymore. I've got to do something different. So he went to his law firm, and he said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire unless I get to spend at least half of my time doing work that I want to work on. Uh, and they were so interested in keeping him, they said, okay, fine, we'll let you do that. Uh, do your pro bono work you know, for half your time, and then you can still do your other work for us the other half of the time. And he said what he wanted to work on was partisan redistricting. He'd always just been bugged by this, and he had never really gotten, you know, had been involved in any cases like this before at all. So he knew that I had worked on redistricting, so he called me up and said, so, David, how should we do this? How should, what, what kinds of things should we, we look for? And we talked about it for quite a while. He came up here one weekend and met with another one of my friends, uh, Ken Mayer, who works on this kind of thing. And, and we sort of talked about you know, the, how you would put a case together. And, and one thing that he thought was uh, an important idea and we agreed with is to pick one state where you have a, a Republican gerrymander and another state where you have a Democratic gerrymander. So Michigan is their other state that they also filed a suit where you had a Democratic gerrymander. They wanted to make it clear to the Supreme Court that eventually we'll hear this that it's not a partisan thing. Both parties do this. And if you're trying to convince Justice Kennedy, I think it's critical to not have this be a partisan thing where you're out trying to bash Republicans. I think to show that, yeah, this is something the Democrats do as well, it's going to be critical for convincing the Supreme Court and especially, again, Justice Kennedy. Uh, and so this is, you know, so they got going on this. He raised, uh, you know, some money from his firm and, and other sources to, you know, be able to uh, to, to do the case. Um, and they, you know, filed it uh, a little over a year ago now. Uh, and and they've had some some pretty uh, good success in a preliminary ruling. And so back in December. The, the state of Wisconsin uh, filed a motion, motion to dismiss where they said that this, you know, shouldn't even litigate this case, just dismiss it, you know, without even hearing a trial. Uh, and to do that, you have to have a pretty, you know, strong case that this is a frivolous lawsuit, basically, that's, that's not uh, worth the, the judge's time. And so when the, the court uh, responded to this, they had a, a very sort of detailed, lengthy, like 23-page response where they went through point by point and kind of took it apart. And uh, my friend and, and the attorneys on, on the, the plaintiff's side were just thrilled when they read this because there's a lot of language in here that seems to indicate the court's pretty sympathetic to how this uh, case is being made. And I'll just read you a couple of the key lines you know, from the, the preliminary decision to, to reject that motion to dismiss. They said that much of the defendant's remaining argument is devoted to mischaracterizations of the plaintiff's proposed standard. Uh, these arguments rely on the assumption that the plaintiff's proposed standard consists of nothing except a calculation of the efficiency gap. Defendants have simply ignored step one and three of the plaintiff's standard. Uh, and so and he goes on and just, you know, really sort of critical of, of a, you know, the state just doing sloppy work, basically, in, in trying to, to make this motion to dismiss. And then in the final uh, paragraph, they say, we have reviewed the defendant's remaining arguments and conclude they are unpersuasive or premature. Uh, and they can, the last line, however, the current law does not foreclose plaintiff's claims, and those claims are, that are modeled after a standard that the Supreme Court has adopted in other contexts. Accordingly, we conclude that the plaintiffs have stated a claim for relief that is plausible on its face, and we are denying the defendant's motion to dismiss. And so to say, and that's more than they needed to say. So they could easily have dismissed that motion and just say, yes, yeah, this is fine. This meets the standard, the severely weak standard 
that's needed to dismiss emotion like this. You don't have to say that much, but the fact that they actually said that the claim is plausible on its face, that's a pretty strong signal that at least they think there's something to this. And so what the case is going to rest on is whether or not the plaintiffs can prove that their measure of partisan bias is one that, that actually can prove for the first time that the the amount of uh, sort of, uh, of misallocation of votes, and that's the, the the measure they're using, is called efficiency gap, and it's based on this idea of misallocation of votes. That there are these wasted votes basically because of the way the districts are are drawn. And in you know I, in one of the previous slides, I, I mentioned that uh, that there were, you know Democrats received 1.4 million more votes nationally than Republicans, yet they have a you know a relatively small majority or small minority in, in the U.S. House. Same thing happened in Wisconsin in state legislative races where Democrats had a majority of the vote statewide but yet have you know, small minorities in both the state uh, assembly and, and senate. Now some of that is due to again natural uh, sort of patterns of urban versus rural. That the Democratic votes even if you drew districts in the fairest way possible uh, and have a you know computer draw them whatever you're going to have more Democratic voters concentrated because of the way the Democratic voters actually reside in Wisconsin. They they they're, they are concentrated in Milwaukee, so it's hard to draw unless you would slice pieces of the pie out of Milwaukee. Uh, it would be really hard to draw districts that didn't waste more Democratic votes than Republicans. So all of the wasted vote problem in Wisconsin is not due just to drawing lines, uh, and so one thing that the attorneys in this case are, are trying to show is you know, how much of it is due to the way the lines are drawn and how much of it is natural due to the residential patterns in the state of, of Wisconsin where Republicans are just allocated more efficiently around the state than Democrats are. It's just you know, a, a fact of, of the residential patterns. Uh, so that's going to be like the, the, very, the key thing in, in that case. And then finally, the last thing, and um, the, uh, the organizers of this event also asked me to talk a little bit about the sort of changes in technology and how that's affected redistricting. Um, and basically there, the, the answer is you know, pretty straightforward, that I think in, in general it's both been uh, a, a very good thing and a very bad thing. Uh, so the very bad thing is you can do things like draw those crazy maps that I showed you so much more easily than you could before. Okay, so it's really easy to manipulate the maps and stick people in, in different parts of, of the of, of a, a district to uh, to achieve some purpose that's not maybe ideal for for voters. But the good thing about this is that anyone with a computer about this size can draw district lines now. And so the input from citizen groups has been tremendous in a lot of states where you know that do have a more open process. Now the problem with our process was that they it was such a closed process that they didn't uh, get input from citizen groups and, and other uh, groups like like the League of Women Voters. And instead, it was all done in secret, and so no one had any input into it at all. And so that was a problem here. But in a lot of states where they have opened it up to hearings and they go around the state, people can bring their own maps and say, well, what about you know considering you know, these uh, kinds of issues? So that's been a, a really positive thing about having the new technology now of drawing district lines is that it does make it you know so anyone can can draw these districts and, and have their input. I've just mentioned some of the you know the most popular uh, software that's out there today, uh, and most of them are based on this ArcGIS uh, system now. But there are you know, others that are available too. But those are some of the most common ones. Uh, and so I'll stop there and let uh, Andrea talk about the the county redistricting that's going on. The second speaker is Andrea Kaminsky, executive director of the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin. I'm really honored to be speaking um, in a program with David Cannons. Before I get started, I'd like to introduce you to our newest member of the State um, League office uh, staff, and that is Erin Grunzi, um, and she is our new voter education coordinator. And she's already doing great things. She's, she went and spoke to a group in Janesville last week, and, and uh, she's been working with Ingrid and the, and the coalition here in Dane County. So, um, And she'll be uh, also talking to you about uh, becoming, uh, to many of you, about becoming a, an election observer, um, if you're interested in that. So uh, we'll be doing that in April and November. 
And, and by the way, we hired Aaron in great part because we are really concerned about the new voter ID requirements and the fact that the GAB is in such a weakened position and has no money with which to get its, um, you know, to promote its educational campaign about, about voter ID. And we really felt that the league needed to step up at this point. And so I'm, um, thank you to all of you who contributed to make it possible um, to have Aaron with us on our staff. So um, now you're, you're in your materials, um, your excellent uh, study materials, you have uh, information about the Dane County uh, Board's executive committee's uh, redistricting subcommittee. But I want to give a little background first. And that is that um, the league has been active um, as many of you know, on reapportionment and re redistricting back into the 1930s. And, um, and, and since the 1970s, we've had a position favoring an independent commission to draw voting maps so that legislators aren't in a position to choose their voters, right? And voters should choose their lawmakers, their, their representatives. Um, and we recently, in I think 2013, broadened the position to say that either uh, an independent commission or um, an independent agency, such as the Legislative Reference Bureau, would be acceptable to draw voting maps. And uh, that's actually the way it's done in Iowa, um, where the equivalent of our, our Legislative Reference Bureau draws the maps. They've been doing it since, I think, 1990s. And um, they draw the maps. It, it costs about a total of about $20,000 compared to, in Wisconsin, what was it, over $2 million with all the litigation and everything this last time around. And, um, and, and it, it's, uh, it's a, a system that so far has worked very well there. And um, so there is legislation in the, uh, in the legislature right now to, um, to establish the, the Iowa plan here in Dane County. Um, I mean, here in Wisconsin, sorry. But, uh, and the league is supporting that, but we haven't gotten it as far as a hearing yet. By the way, um, of, now we have a lot of league members here. How many of you have worked on redistricting over the years with the league and been actively, you know, called your legislator and, and been on a study committee, whatever? And so thank you for the work you've done on that. It's, it's interesting because um, I think it's an example of the league's nonpartisanship. Um, right now, it's, uh, well, back in, in the 1980s, we, I have a letter in the state office from Dave Travis, dated March 8th, 1989. He was the, um, the Democratic Speaker of the Assembly at the time. And he wrote a letter to Dottie Jenks, who was the state president at the time from Green Bay. And um, he, he called the league out for its, quote, pro-Republican, with a capital R, an anti-democratic with a lowercase d um, activities, saying that, um, he, he, and he asked what special insight into the communities of the state uh, of Wisconsin does the league expect a gaggle of lawyers to bring? He said, does the league really believe that an elite committee picked by a bunch of big shots consisting of 11 members with questionable backgrounds <laughs> has a better understanding of the communities of this state than the 132 purer than the driven snow. Well, that was my addition. Um, elected uh, representatives in the legislature whose job it is to know where the school boundaries are and the telephone exchanges, remember those, and, and so forth. So, you know, that was the Democrats kind of calling the league out for our position in favor of an independent commission. So fast forward now to, uh, to the current time and um, independent nonpartisan redistricting now is the preferred position of the Democrats in the state capitol who frankly probably should have 
worked on that back in 2009, 2010 when they were in, in control because they'd be in a very different place now, I would think, than they are. But um, anyway, so now it's, it's the position of the Democrats. And Speaker Robin Voss in the Assembly is not even allowing a hearing for the, the bill that would introduce the Iowa plan into, into Wisconsin. Um, and so and w- at one point a, a year or so ago, um, Representative Voss, Speaker Voss, said um, that as soon as he sees the liberals on the Dane County Board reform the way they do redistricting, he might consider allowing a, having a hearing in the state capitol. And so it's, it's really great that in 2015, um, Dane County Supervisor Jenny Dye uh, stepped up and uh, stepped up to that challenge from Speaker Voss, and she created a, um, a subcommittee uh, with uh, of the, the executive committee of the Dane County Board, you know, with the blessing of of uh, Board Chair Sharon Corrigan, and um, it's a redistricting subcommittee. And I was um, I was honored to be able to uh, represent the league on that committee. That, that subcommittee actually had a one position that was reserved for the league, so um, they knew what they were doing. But uh, and I got to I got to um, be on it, which was uh, which was great. The the redistricting subcommittee developed a proposal for non well it isn't nonpartisan redistricting really because all the seats on the Dane County Board are nonpartisan anyway but it's for an independent um, redistricting commission and um, we the the com- subcommittee met several times in 2015 we sought public input um, through the the Dane County um, public input website speakupdane.com we held a public hearing in uh, November, on November 30th, and Diane Martin-Liebert came and spoke, to, uh, spoke on behalf of the League. Jenny Dye presented our, our proposal to the Executive Committee in January. And I'm told by Jenny that it will be introduced as legislation probably later this month. And... In the process of, of uh, developing the, uh, the proposal, we, we, kind of, we put together some lists, basically. And they're, they're going to have a lot of the terms that David mentioned in, in his presentation. We looked at the commission composition and uh, criteria for the mapping process and criteria for the uh, map content. And then um, also encouraged public input. So the commission composition that we recommend it would have nine or 11 members, citizens, from with a certain diversity. City of Madison should be on it, but also non-Madison cities and villages should be represented. Towns, uh, there should be gender diversity, racial and ethnic diversity, geographic diversity. And to be on the committee, you need to be a, um, a Dane County resident, and you need to be not a member of the Dane County Board or employed by Dane County, and that includes consultants. And um, that, was, that was one that we weren't sure we were going to get through, but um, I think that's, that's going to be um, where we'll need support for this when, we, when it goes to the, the Dane County Board to be accepted, you know, to be adopted. Um, we said that members of the commission should not be a registered lobbyist before Dane County or in an official position with a partisan organization uh, within the last year or something. We, we put a time limit on it. Not a participant in the state of Wisconsin 2011 partisan redistricting process. <laughs> should be impartial and have basic familiarity with maps and uh, potential conflicts of interest uh, need to be disclosed. So those were the eligibility require, uh, criteria. But then we also talked about how the uh, members would be selected. And there was a, there's a pretty elaborate 
process for selecting those reps from the City of Madison, Dane County Towns Association, and Dane County Cities and Villages Association. Those three were something that took a lot of discussion to get people to come to consensus on that. And then um, in addition to those representatives, there would be um, additional representatives appointed by the uh, Dane County Board Chair and the County Clerk. And uh, the process, you know, we, we wrote a lot of details into it, which is in your study uh, materials, Try, just trying to reduce the influence of any one individual or any one interest as much as, as we could. Then there was a criteria for the, um, for the mapping process. And here's where you, you'll hear a lot of the terms that, that David mentioned. It, it should be, well, we said independent, impartial, fair, accountable, transparent, <clears throat> timeliness with respect to the state statutory process, Public engagement um, is going to be, we believe, should be encouraged, including an opportunity for people to submit maps that will be considered by the commission. And uh, for that, we actually forwarded to the, um, you know, to the board for when they consider this uh, materials from a, um, a map drawing contest that the Ohio League of Women Voters and other organizations there had back in, I think it was 2011, which was very popular and was a great opportunity for people to learn about redistricting and get engaged. And for those who were doing the redistricting to hear from the public, no kidding. And then finally, criteria for the map content. And, you know, as David said, equal population, contiguity, compactness, some of these things are in uh, racial, ethnic, and language minority representation, communities of interest. Some of these are, are required. Um, we also felt that political boundaries such as cities, towns, villages, school districts, etc., should be respected. Geographical and natural boundaries um, like rivers and lakes, certainly something to think about in Madison, and neighborhood boundaries. And we understood that sometimes what, when you're trying to satisfy one of these criteria, you, you make it more difficult to satisfy another one. But we put these into um, priority order with an understanding that, that in the long run the commission's going to have to do this work and um, come up with the best maps they can. So the question was uh, whether or not uh, under the uh, current practices, whether or not a child is total population or, or voters. Um, as it turns out, actually, there's a, a lawsuit right now that's for the Supreme Court in the state of Texas um, that addresses that, that very question. And the, this is one of the cases that because of Scalia's death probably will be postponed and they're not going to hear that. The standard right now is its total population. It counts everybody, a newborn baby all the way up to you know, someone who can't even vote, like a, you know, a felon in prison, whatever, uh, wouldn't be able to vote. So it's total population as a standard now. This lawsuit that was filed in Texas uh, earlier this year and, and is before the Supreme Court right now um, would challenge that and say that it should be voters, uh, eligible voters, not total population. Um, and it's hard to say, you know, given the, the current competition in the court, I, I, there were a lot of people who were kind of nervous that the court might go in, in that direction, um, but with, with a 4-4 split right now, they, they again, won't be uh, deciding that uh, in this session anyway. So, so when it would go into effect would depend on how close it was to the next election. And so the, the Supreme Court has been pretty consistent in not imposing any changes in voting practices that don't have enough time to be implemented before uh, the next election. So the, so the fastest this would possibly go, so we get the three-judge panel would rule, uh, so it's being tried in, in May, They'd probably rule sometime, you know, late summer-ish. Uh, earliest it ever would get on the DACA would be spring of 2017. Uh, they would hear it 
you know, the, the earliest it would possibly be coming out would be, you know, June of 17, probably be, you know, later than that. And so it's conceivable if everything moved as quickly as possible, they'd be forced to redraw lines for the 2018 elections. That, that would be the quickest. My guess is these things usually take longer than that, so I would say 2020 is probably a better, better guess of when this actually would change any district lines. Yeah, so the, the Texas suit and eligible voters, what, what would that mean? Uh, so so there, there, there are two main things they're, they're targeting here. Uh, the, the biggest w- would be uh, non-citizens, you know, because in, in Texas there are you know, a fair number of, of non-citizens who aren't allowed to vote but do count in terms of, of total population for drawing district lines uh, today. But so they would be excluded, but also children would be excluded. I mean, un- anyone who's not eligible to vote. So anyone under the age of 18 would be excluded. Uh, anyone who's not a citizen would be excluded. And anyone who is a, a felon uh, would be excluded. You would be an eligible voter even if you didn't have an actual photo ID. So for purposes of that of this lawsuit anyway, because you are eligible to vote if you would get the ID. And so 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 that even in the Texas case where they also have a very strict photo ID law, that is not part of that lawsuit anyway. Because I could see how if you had a you know a very technical definition of that, you could say, hey, you don't have an ID, sorry, you shouldn't but given that something can change like fairly quickly, you just go down and get your ID all of a sudden you'd be in a different category. Just for purposes of redrawing district lines, you couldn't really do that, I think. So, yeah. But you're right. Given that Texas has a higher proportion of non-citizens in some other states, it could, it could have that effect relative to a state like, I don't know, South Dakota that very few non-citizens in their state. So, so, yeah, you're right. I think overall it might actually reduce the number of their districts, but it, has, it would have a huge – and the, the motivation behind it was a partisan one. Um, that Republicans believe like they would, would pick up within the state, they'd pick up a lot of seats because the, the non-citizens tended to reside more heavily in, in Democratic districts. And so they were artificially, so the Republicans were claiming that they had, uh, you know, districts that had, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but like, you know, 400,000 voters, whereas there'd be Democratic seats that had 250,000 voters. Uh, so they argued that was a violation of, of one person, one vote, defining a person as an eligible voter. Um, and so that's the partisan lens through which they were viewing it. But you're absolutely right. If you look at this in a national perspective, they might be putting themselves in a position of losing a few congressional districts uh, if the numbers would work out that way. So it's an interesting point. The issue about felons is, is a sticky one because you get uh, uh, felons, people in, in prison, they do prison j- gerrymandering. There are people who are from one district, but they're incarcerated elsewhere, and that's where they're counted where they're incarcerated. And so when you're thinking in terms of an assembly district, which is a fairly small district and it has a prison in it, and it's then, mm-hmm. yeah, those, uh, those who are felons can't vote, and so the vote of the okay. other citizens becomes magnified. Yeah, and there are some states that have changed that to, to make it so the prisoners are counted in the city they're from, not the city where they're in prison. And there are some states that have done that for exactly that reason. It makes it more you know, equitable distribution of the, the voters across the state. If you think about the, the logic of a partisan gerrymander, um, that you know, what you want to do, and this is exactly what they did in, in Wisconsin, it was an incredibly good partisan gerrymander in terms of like, maximizing the, the Republican share of, of districts. It was you know, really, really efficient. Because what you want to do is maximize the number of districts where you have a, a really good shot of, of winning, but you're not wasting votes in winning those districts. But, as you point out, if you slice it too thin, you could go the other direction, and because you've created more competitive districts than had been in place before, but competitive districts that all have a Republican you know, uh, leaning, but if you slice that a little too thin and you get that, that margin down a little too close, if you get a landslide election for the party in the other direction, all of a sudden you've put a lot of districts in play that wouldn't have been in play had you had a more traditional incumbent gerrymander. The more uh, traditional incumbent gerrymanders, you make safe districts for both parties. Okay, so this wasn't an incumbent gerrymander. This was a, a partisan gerrymander where you you know, try to give as many you know, marginally competitive districts to yourself that you can pick up that many more seats then. But that you do run the risk of having that backfire 
if you get a, a landslide election for the other party, you're going to put a lot of those seats in play that wouldn't have been in play with the other. There was the only case I can think of that that was Indiana in the 1980s. Uh, that I, I remember a partisan gerrymander like that that initially worked out to help Republicans, but by the end of the decade it had flipped to where Democrats had, had actually ended up uh, picking up some of those seats that they thought they were going to be able to have for the whole decade. Andrew, maybe you said this. Where are we on the recommendations of your committee? Well, Supervisor Dye says that she will be introducing this legislation probably later this month. Um, this is a question about how the process actually happens. Um, is there a requirement that they state what the priority, what the criteria are for a particular district? Right. Yeah, it would be really nice if it did work that way, but it doesn't. Um, and so, because ideally, you would want them to sort of justify how each district, you know, what the thinking was behind uh, a given district. But that it, it's done more sort of the, the whole picture. And so they so they do, you know, for for most states anyway, under most state law. And there's going to be variation because you know states do have have different different laws on this. But for, for most states, you will at least have to report the number of, say, split communities, the number of, uh, and so that would you know, get to the communities of interest idea. You have to report the levels of political competitiveness. You have to definitely show the one person, one vote. And so at a state level, those criteria are typically followed. Some states even require compactness measures. So there, there are different measures of compactness that that political geographers have come up with that give you a number that says that this overall map has a compactness score of you know 0.137 or whatever. And so there are some states that require that kind of thing uh, as well. Um, but I haven't ever heard of a state that does what you're suggesting, which is this district-by-district district justification based on the criteria of why this district looks like this and and, and not like something else. And it would be a nice thing to, to have that, but I'm, I'm not aware of any state that goes to that level of, of detail on, on the principles. Well, with the last redistricting, we had no transparency. Oh, zero, so right. I'm what they would do by law is the first, the big two. They have to take care of equal population and, and race, and, and those they would have to justify on a case-by-case basis. Uh, uh, but then the other ones, you know, where, as I mentioned, you know, there, there are trade-offs involved, and, and you can't have a map that maximizes all of these criteria. It, it would be useful, um, certainly in, in terms of, of justifying why a map is the way it is, to, to have kind of a rank order like that and to have them indicate, like, how they flip rankings and why. Uh, that would be great if they would do that. Again, I don't think any state has required anything quite that specific, but that would be a good thing to advocate for. Competitiveness is something that, again, some states have it written into their set of criteria that are required and, and other states uh, don't. And it's usually farther down the list if it, if it does exist. I think Florida might be one of the few states where it actually is mentioned as one of the, the top, top criteria. And, and, you know, it definitely appears in others. Uh, Andrea mentioned the Iowa, you know, uh, commission as a good model to follow, and they have produced very competitive districts. Now, they have the natural geography in terms of how voters are distributed across the state that facilitates that kind of competition much more easily than Wisconsin does. Again, we just the way that our population is concentrated, it makes it harder for us to draw competitive maps than Iowa, but um, they, their commission has done a great job in, in doing that. So, so it, is, it is a criteria that, that could be put higher on a, a list, certainly. Andrea, could you refresh my memory? Traditionally in the state, and I don't think it's by statute, but by tradition, localities start the redistricting process, and then the legislature uh, takes the cities or the counties. Traditionally, that's how it was done in Wisconsin. That um, that local districts were drawn first, and then and then it would go to the legislature in 2011. The locals were working on it, apparently, and then that's when the legislature in July, I believe it was, just suddenly said, nope, these are the maps, you know, they've been drawn in secret from the law, uh, law firm across the street, and, um, and by the way, we're going to change the law, and, um, and states can go first. Yet, um, we checked, in the, in the Dane County um, 
subcommittee, we did check with, with um, the corporate counsel for the, the county, and, and they said that there's still a lot of line drawing that we can do at the local level first. Yeah, so like the ward lines typically had been the building block for the, the legislative district lines. Um, and I don't know the extent to which those are in conflict now. Uh, I know that there were more sort of split wards than we'd had in previous maps. I think they, they still try to respect those those ward boundaries, but that was made more complicated by the t fact that it was all done in secret this time, and so there wasn't the coordination that we normally would have on, on that. So... One thing that we that I didn't I don't think I mentioned that that um, the subcommittee says that municipal clerk should be involved. We didn't we didn't say that they had to be on the committee, but we said that they, they should have early and ongoing input all the way through the process because um, a couple of them came and spoke early on um, in our committee work and and said it's you know they, for them it's terrible when they have to have multiple different. Uh, You've been listening to Redistricting and Why It Matters, sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County, with Andrea Kaminsky, Executive Director of the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin, and David Cannon, Professor and Chair of the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. The talk took place on March 2, 2016, at the Capital Lakes Retirement Community. To find out what else the League is up to, go to lwvdanecounty.org. That's lwvdanecounty.org. The views expressed here are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted if credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning.